Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the scriptures this morning and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In a moment, I'll read verses 15 through 23. We're going through a series, sermon series on the church. What is the church? Looking at the various metaphors or analogies in the New Testament in particular that are used to describe, to help us understand who the church is. So, who are we as Christ's church? And as we began our time, we remember we are Christ's church. We belong to Him. We are His possession. We are not our own. We are His. And truth be told, there's no one else's who we'd rather be than Christ's. So as we come to Ephesians 1 this morning, would you stand as I read God's Word? out of reverence and respect for the word of the Lord. Once I read through verse 23 of chapter 1, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful for his word. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious, glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joint and marrow, of soul, spirit. Thank you that your word is eternal, that it never perishes, it never fades. 
and that it always accomplishes precisely what it intends to. And so we pray that it would have its way in us today through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you ever struggle to pray? Do you ever feel like your prayers might be bouncing off the ceiling as if they're not making their way to God? Do you feel like your prayer life perhaps is stale? As one author says, you pray the same old things about the same old things. How many Christians, how many of us might say, I wish I prayed more. This morning we are dropping into the book of Ephesians, a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, a church he ministered to for about a three-year period. And after three years, Paul writes this letter to summarize his gospel instruction to the church. Here it is where he sums up everything he taught them. He doesn't say to them, you know what? I'm going to teach you something new. You know, I've been with you three years, but I didn't tell you everything I needed to tell you, and so I'm going to write this letter to teach you something new. Paul here instructs the Ephesians and teaches them again what he has already taught them. We are often like the people that Paul encountered in Athens at a place called the Areopagus where there people would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I wonder if that's ever something that we get caught up in. I just need to hear something new. Tell me something I don't know, Pastor. Tell me, tell me something I've never heard before. Pique my interest. Catch my ears. Catch my attention. Here, though, what does the Apostle Paul do? He teaches the Ephesians again what he's already taught them. He reminds the church that they are facing particular powers in the world. These are evil powers, spiritual powers of darkness. And time and time again throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul reminds the church they are in a spiritual battle. But he also reinforces the church by instructing us on the nature and the mission of the church. And right here, we are dropped in to chapter 1, and we read about this prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, a prayer that was concerned about the nature and the mission of the church. And as you think about for a moment, what, what are the things that you pray about? What are the things that always rise to the top? 
Do these truths that Paul prayed for the church, do these ever enter into your thoughts? I need to pray for the nature and the mission of the church. Do, do those things ever make it to be a priority in your prayers? We need to know who we are and what we are supposed to do. And so I'm going to pray that we know who we are and what we are supposed to do. Maybe we need a dose of the way Paul prayed in our own prayer lives. In fact, you can use this prayer in your own prayer life. You can pray these things that Paul says that he was praying for the church in Ephesus. You can pray this and you can apply it to this church. So let's just get a, a brief overview of, of what Paul is praying for. and We're going to focus a majority of our time this morning on verses 22 and 23. But before we get to them, let's catch ourselves up on what Paul is praying for, for the Ephesian for, uh, church. First, you see the grounding of his prayer here, don't you? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints... This is the reason why Paul is praying. They have faith. And notice this isn't a nebulous faith. Ephesian church, I'm so glad that you have faith. I'm so glad that you believe. No, he says specifically, you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of your faith. How does Paul know that Jesus Christ is the object of the Ephesians' faith? Well, I think it's because it's evidenced in their lives, the way that they live their lives. When someone has their faith in Jesus Christ, you can't hide it. You see it. And one of the ways that it's evident in their lives is their love for all of the saints. And you love all the saints. Faith in Christ is primary. And love for all the saints flows out of this faith, so he does not cease to pray for them. He remembers them in his prayers, and he is requesting something specifically from God the Father. That is who Paul addresses in his prayers, God the Father. What does he ask for? That God would give them a spirit of wisdom. That is, that they would be able to navigate skillfully through this life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever need that in your life? Lord, I need wisdom. Wisdom to be able to navigate through the twists and the turns. Wisdom to be able to know what to do in particular circumstances that I didn't know I was going to have to face. I wasn't ready for them. I wasn't prepared for them. But they came my way anyways. I need a spirit of wisdom so that when those times come, I know how to navigate by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that would honor and glorify Him. And he also prays that God might give them more knowledge of who He is. Do you see that there? That He may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I want you to know God more. I want, to know, I want you to know who He is, how He works. How does this happen? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Do you know that your 
heart has eyes? Is that new to you? My heart, who I am on the inside, my inner person has eyes. It sees. And so he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be able to see more clearly who God is. This is the unseen, invisible God. This is the God that you cannot see with your eyes. But do not worry, church. There are eyes in your heart, and in your heart, you will be able to see who this God is and how He has revealed Himself and who He has revealed Himself to be. We can think about it this way. Haven't their eyes already been enlightened? Don't they know who Jesus Christ is? Well, yes, but they need more. I hope that's what we would say as well. Haven't our eyes been enlightened? Yes, I pray that you know Jesus Christ and that your faith and trust is in Him and Him alone. But guess what? I hope you know more of Him. I hope you know more of this God. So what's the purpose of having their eyes, the eyes of their hearts, enlightened. The purpose is threefold. You see it here in a series of what's. So, what number one? What are the riches of His glorious... Oh, I'm sorry, back up one. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. So you've been called... That there's hope behind that calling, hope for a future. What number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So that's the purpose of having your eyes enlightened. You would know what is the hope, what are the riches. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And then he takes that last purpose there, that last what, this what of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, and he double-clicks on it. You ever double-click on something? What happens then? It expands. That's what Paul does here. He says, okay, let's take this immeasurable greatness that is the power of God towards us who believe, and let's double-click on it. How do I know the immeasurable greatness of God's power? Well, we know it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ, and now this power is going to be seen and expressed when He raised Him from the dead. So there's resurrection power. How do I know the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards me who believes, towards you who believes? I look to the empty tomb. There Jesus Christ has been risen again from the dead. But guess what? That's not it. That's not all. And seated him at his right hand. So then there was the ascension. Christ ascended into heaven. Where then he is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It's like Paul breaks out in praise of the exalted Christ. 
You want to know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God in us? Look at the risen Christ and the exalted Christ. This is where you will find the power of God on display in such a way that it will blow your mind. The power of God exclaims this, the ever-living and risen Christ reigns supreme over all things. Hallelujah, praise God. What in the world, though, does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us because, as Paul will go on to say in a moment, we are Christ's body. And so Paul has been exclaiming, the power of God is made known through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that has every implication on how you live your life and how we live our life as the church. And maybe we would say to ourselves this morning, I'm so thankful that God has shown his power through Jesus Christ. I believe that. I know that. But doesn't that have more to do with people out there than people in here? Don't people out there need to know that the ever-living and risen Christ reigns supreme over all things? I mean, don't we already know that? Well, it seems as if Paul says, we need to understand that more. And so Paul tells us, we as the church, are Christ's body, and Christ rules his body. So on your outline there, that's the, the first blank. Christ rules his body. That really is the main point this morning. Christ rules his body. And that's something that we need to hear. When we think about that we are the body of Christ, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe we should start singing, uh, you know, the... Uh, hip bones connected to the knee bone or, you know, these kind of th so songs thinking about the analogy of our physical bodies and what that means in relation to how we relate to Christ. But really what Paul is saying here, as he talks about the church being the body of Christ, he's saying, remember Christ rules over you, his body. Christ reigns supreme over you, his body. I wonder if this is the first thing we think about when we think about the church being Christ's body. Maybe we think Christ cherishes his body, yes. Christ loves his body, yes. The body represents Christ, yes. But Paul starts with Christ's rule, his authority, and his dominion. And he continues this thought with the word and. So verse 22, you see this. And he put all things under his feet. He has just been praising and worshiping the exalted Christ through whom God the Father is demonstrating the immeasurable power of his greatness. But Paul continues to go on to praise and exalt Christ. And he says, and he, that is referring to God the Father, the Father of glory. And he, that is God the Father, what did he do? He put all things under his feet. That is, God the Father put all things under Christ's 
feet. To help us better understand this, let's break down the parts. So, and He, and God the Father, put, could also be rendered or translated subjected. So, God the Father placed, put, subjected all things under the authority of Christ. What are these all things? Well, it might sound very obvious, but let's be specific about it. All things includes everything in the material, material universe, but more specifically, it refers to all intelligent beings, whether good or evil, angel or demonic, who are a part of God's creation. So God has said to put everything under subjection to the exalted and cosmic Christ. Where does Paul get this idea? Where does Paul get this idea that God put all things under Christ's feet? Well, he gets it from Psalm 8. If you have your Bibles, just turn back there for a moment. Psalm 8. What Jeff read for us this morning. Verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. There it is. Do you hear it? The end of verse 6. Paul is quoting Psalm 8.6 in Ephesians 1.22. What is Psalm 8 doing? What is Psalm 8 reminding us, us of? He's reminding us of creation. He's meditating on God's creation of Adam and Eve. When God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the creation. Remember, the Lord told Adam and Eve to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to exercise dominion over it. That is, they were to exercise, as the Lord's representatives, rule over his creation. But there was a problem, wasn't there? Adam and Eve failed. They fell. They sinned against God. And so man's dominion has been limited by the fall, the full dominion which God intended for man to enjoy is unattainable because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And now this original sin has infected all of us. So what are we to do? Well, Psalm 8 not only looks back towards creation at the beginning, but also looks forward. And the writer of Hebrews, chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 2, again also quotes Psalm 8. Hebrews 2, I'm going to start, start to read in verse 5. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man? that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death 
for everyone. So what does the writer of Hebrews do? He says, remember Psalm 8? Guess who that talks about? That talks about the final and full man, Jesus Christ. Everything was going to be put under subjection to him, to his feet. The same thing that Paul does here. When Paul quotes this verse, who is he referring to? He is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who will establish full dominion and full authority and full power and will exercise perfectly the rule of God and he will conquer and triumph over all God's enemies like it says in Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The truth here that is heralded by Paul is a reminder of Christ's victory. In fact, go back in your Bibles here now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 24. But let's stop for a moment and just think. Paul is saying... God is going to put everything under Christ's authority and everything is going to be subjected to Christ and he is going to triumph over his enemies. What is it? What is it that you would like to be put under Christ's authority and rule and reign? What is it that you would like to be put under his feet? What is it that you would like for him to triumph over? 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies, what, under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exercised, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What is it? What is it that we want put under Jesus' feet? We want death to be put under Jesus' feet. We want Jesus to triumph over death. Jesus already has dethroned death through his resurrection, but one day this last enemy will finally and fully be destroyed forever. Go back to Ephesians 1. Go back to Ephesians 1 and look at this verse. And he put all things under his feet. There is hope that fills this line that Paul penned. Let this hope fill your heart because in the end, Jesus wins. How do we know? Death will be no more. Christ's authority, dominion, and power is the best news for humanity that is enslaved to death. I want to escape death. I want to escape sin. The only way is to Know Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus will have all things put underneath his feet. But God is not done yet. God the Father. Look at what it says here in the second part of this verse. And gave him, so God the Father gave him, that's Jesus, as head over all things to the church. So God the Father is giving Christ and it's as if he's given a title. Do you see Christ's title there? The title is head over all things, right? So he gave him as head over all things. That's the title that Christ bears. Christ is the head over everything and he's given head over all things to the church. Again, all things means the same as it did earlier. So Christ is head over the universe, exercises authority over the universe. And Christ, who is the head over all things, is given to the church. Why? Because he is also the head of the church. This is good news for us, dear brother and sister, because it reminds us that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Where do we get this understanding? Well, look at this. And gave him as head over all things. There was another man who had headship. Another man who was head. The very first man, Adam. He was our head before Christ. But where did the headship of Adam lead us? It brought us into sin. Go back in your Bibles a few verses to or a few books to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So do you hear the headship of Adam there? One man's trespass has led us into sin. Led us into death. Death reigned through that one man. It was Adam's headship that meant our death, spiritual death as those dead in our transgressions and sins. But let's go on reading in Romans 5, verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We had a head one day, we were in Adam. He was our head, and because of his sin, he led us into death. But now, Jesus Christ has come, and now we have a better head, a true head, a head who gives us life. He is the true and better Adam. Where Adam was supposed to lead us into life, and Adam failed, now Christ has come, and Christ has led us into life, and Christ has succeeded. This is the true head who gives us life. And the word here, head, in Ephesians 1, points to Christ's preeminence. It's a big word, but it just means he has first priority, first place as Lord. Why is it important that Christ, the head of all things, is also the head of the church? So, Christ is head over all things and he is head over the church. 
Why is that truth important? Because the world is to see the headship of Christ expressed in the church as we live as His body in complete subjection and submission to Him. Christ is head over all things, yes, but what is the world doing? It's not living under Christ's headship, but we as the church, we are living underneath Christ's headship. We put ourselves in submission to Him. We subject ourselves to Him. We live for Him. And so the preeminence of Christ is to be most evident in the church. You won't see it out there, but you should always see it in here. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 1, 18. The world will not, cannot make Christ preeminent. And what does the way we live our life communicate about Christ being our head? Just as there was hope that filled that first part of the verse, there's hope that fills this line as well, because it is for the benefit of the church that Christ is head over all things. Jesus Christ, governing the universe for our sake, is meant to be a great source of comfort and guarantee that all things work together for good for those who love him. Christ's headship is meant to bless his church. It's not for our misery or discouragement, not for discontentment or doubting. Christ governing as head over all things is meant for our benefit and for our blessing. Lord, why is this happening in my life? I don't know what's going on but I know Christ is head over all things. And because he is governing as such, I'm able to enjoy the dominion of Christ. Maybe that's a point of application. <laughs> enjoy the dominion of Christ. If Christ rules over his body, enjoy the dominion of Christ. How do we do that? What does it look like? Well, here are these two sub-points now, very quickly. We know that Christ rules his body. How specifically is he doing this? First, Christ directs his body. Christ directs his body. So we come to verse 23, which is his body. How is it that Christ demonstrates his rule? There is a closeness, there is a unity, there is an association between Christ and his people. And in this analogy of a physical body and a head, what does the head do? Head calls the shots. It directs everything. The body can do nothing without the head. The body only knows what to do because the head tells it what to do. Without my head, what is my body? If you just turn over maybe a page or so in your Bible to Ephesians 4. 
verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is what the work of Christ is doing to direct us as his body. He's equipped us, and he directs us so that every part of his body is working properly. And as that's happening, what happens? The body grows so that it builds itself up in love. That's what undergirds the church. That's what helps grow the church is this kind of love. The body only knows how to work as it's directed by the head. Would the body dare question the head? Would we ever say, Jesus, I don't really like the way we're going. Jesus, I'm not sure your direction is helping your body. Jesus, is this really the direction you want us to go? And we say things like, we will follow the lamb wherever he goes, just not there. Jesus is the head over all things, and yet would we question his headship over us? We struggle with if if his headship is really good. Is it really for our benefit? We're supposed to submit to his headship, submit to his direction. Submit to his direction individually in our own lives But that is not at the expense of how Christ directs his body, the church. Christ will never direct you away from his body that is the church. How he directs you individually as a Christian will always be for the benefit of his body, the church. And will always be for the building of his body, the strengthening of his body. How else does Christ rule his body? Well, Christ fills his bodily, his body. Christ fills his body. That's the second sub-point there. We come to this last statement, don't we? In Ephesians 1, 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's music to my ears. That sounds great. That's so beautiful, but I have no idea what it means. <laughs> like a mystery wrapped in an enigma. A bunch of fullness and filling and all in all. So let's try to break it down here for a second. What is Paul saying? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. All in all. There are a few ways that people have understood this phrase. Some take it to mean that Christ is the fullness of God who fills all in all. There's just one problem. The New Testament never says anything like this. In the book of Colossians, it does say that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, thereby stating Christ's full deity, 
But to say Christ is the fullness of God is never said anywhere else in Scripture. And also it doesn't make sense with the structure of the sentence. Because both body, so which is his body, that's the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Both the body and the fullness are explaining who the church is. So, Paul is saying, the church is the fullness of him, referring to Christ, who fills all in all. Now, there comes another question. So this fullness, if the church is the fullness of Christ, how is the church the fullness of Christ? And there's a debate whether this is an active fullness or a passive fullness. You might think, well, what difference does that make? Well, let's think for a moment. Imagine a jar. In my mind, I think of a mason jar. Some people that maybe do some uh, canning or things like that. You have jars or jams, jellies, a jar. If this fullness of him is an active fullness, it means that the church is filling up Christ. So Christ is the jar. The church is what fills up the jar. So in this sense, we are filling up Christ. The church is the content that fills up what is lacking or incomplete in Christ. So if you pour water into the jar, the church is like the water filling the jar while the jar is Christ. In this understanding, then Christ would be incomplete without the church. Just as the body needs the head, the shepherd needs sheep, the vine needs branches, the groom needs a bride, so then the church completes or complements Christ. So is this an active fullness, an active filling of the church into Christ? Well, there's very good reason why some people argue this, because every time this word is used in this way in the New Testament, it's always an active filling. So remember when Jesus broke the bread and the fish and they filled the baskets afterwards? That filling was an active filling. In fact, everywhere you look in the New Testament, it's always active. So, that's a very good argument. If everywhere else in the New Testament it's active, then maybe it's active here as well, right? That would be a very good, very good argument. But I'm not convinced. I think it's a passive filling. And here is... Here's why. I believe that as a passive filling, this fullness of Him, is that it's Christ then who is filling the church. So the church is the jar. Christ then, in a sense, is the content that is filling the jar or filling the church. In fact, this is how Christ is often described. He is the filler of all things. He is filling the church. So like Ephesians 2, 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in Christ you are also being, in a sense, filled with the Spirit of God. 
Or Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So who is the filler there? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is filling. It appears throughout the whole of the New Testament, in fact, that Jesus, who is the glory of God, is filling his church with his spirit. But also, understanding this fullness as passive seems to fit better with the overall context of what Paul is saying. Think about it. Paul is declaring the great exaltation of Christ, whose supremacy is over everything, who is the preeminent Lord, and then you say, yeah, but he needs the church to fill him. Like he's lacking something? Like he is incomplete without the church? No, he's not incomplete. He is actually filling the church. He is the source of our life. He is the source of our vitality, and we are filled with His fullness so that the life He gives us is inexhaustible and immortal. And what do we do then as the body of Christ who has been filled by Him? We are to fill all creation as representatives and witnesses to the gospel of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to fill the earth with His glory and with His truth and with His gospel because we have been so filled by Him. Yes, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. It is beautiful, it is amazing, it is great because it's Christ's mission in the church and in His world. So what should we do? Let us pray that the glory of the Lord would be testified by our lives and by our words in such a way that God would cover the earth with His glory as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray that we know who we are and what our mission is in Christ so that Christ might be preeminent in all things. Because the church is Christ's body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would take your word, that you would plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need to be renewed. How we need to be refreshed. How we need to be changed today. May your word do its perfect work in us. Father, if there is someone here who does not know Jesus Christ today, that they would say, I do not know the exalted Christ. Do not know that he was risen from the dead. Do not know that he died on the cross. That today would be the day of salvation. Today, you would open even the eyes of their hearts. That they would no longer be blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. But they would say, Christ is greater than I ever knew. He's greater than I ever thought, than I ever imagined. That he would die on the cross to save us from our sins and give us new life. 
may these ones repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, that today might be the day of salvation. Let us not forget, Father, who we are as the body of Christ, and let us not forget the nature and the mission of your church, that we might be found faithful to follow and live for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.